Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well. We're heading into the festive season, the end of the year now, so I hope everything's going fine for you. Now this week we have a case from the USA, it's about a missing wife that turns up dead and the husband is just suspected of doing away with another wife. So references today are from the Akron Beacon Journal which covered this case oh, quite a bit. The Daily News, I've got some court records in there and there's this book which I do recommend. It's called The Stranger in My Bed by Michael Fleeman. Now, I did the usual, I got my uh, audio, audible, audio book for this. I must have listened to it, I don't know, 10 times. And it is a really good book. It really will go into more detail than I can hear. Anyway, so this week we go to Ohio in the USA. We're back in the 70s, November 74 to be precise, where Janice Elaine Hartman, 23, is missing. Now, it's just days after filing for divorce from her abusive husband, or not so much filing for divorce, her divorce has just come through from her husband, 23-year-old John David Smith III. Okay, so in 1969, Smith and Jan met at a high school party in Seville. Now, Jan was described by her brother as a bit of a tomboy and a free spirit. So when she met John Smith with his leather jacket and motorbike, she was attracted to him. Now, he was a bit of a bad boy, but by the photos of him, he looked a bit nerdy. Now, school friends of Smith described him as intelligent but introverted. Now, this also attracted Jan to him. After Janice and Smith graduated, they eloped to Detroit. Now, this was totally against Janice's parents' wishes, and they were married in 1970. Following their marriage, they moved to Columbus and were estranged from their relatives for a few years. Now, Jan was a store manager at a gas station and John studied engineering at Ohio State University. But things weren't good in their marriage. By 1974, the couple separated with John going to live at a trailer park in Worcester and Janice moved in with her father at Doylestown. Now, that's about 20 miles or 32 k's apart or about a half hour drive now janice worked as a coyote dancer at a bar which again went against what her family liked but she invited them to come and see what she was doing you see a coyote coyote dancer doesn't strip like a go-go dancer does they did go and see her and this made her relatives feel a lot more comfortable about what she was doing and it looks like Janice also served as a police informant on drug-related matters. On the 14th of November, Janice was granted. On the 14th of November, Janice was granted an uncontested divorce from Smith. But a few days before that, on November the 10th, 1974, Janice was physically attacked, sexually assaulted, and threatened. In a police report filed shortly after the incident. Janice described what had occurred. 
Now, she states that while at Portage Pub in Doylston, she and a date, Leonard Bennett, were invited by a blonde-haired man to a party at Larry Swain's house. Now, while at Larry Swain's residence, a man threw her to the floor, removed her clothing, dragged her into the bedroom and attempted to have sexual intercourse with her. According to Janice, the man told her that bitches like you don't deserve to live. At that point, several other men entered the bedroom and held Janice down. She stated that she struggled and was struck in the face. Others attempted to engage in sexual relations with her and at some point the blonde-haired man came into the room with a loaded shotgun, pointed it at her and said, Narcs always have an easy way out. Another man shouted not to kill her and Leonard Bennett and Janice were eventually released. So that's pretty shocking. Now this looks like it's got to do with what her drug informant duties were with the police. Who knows? Now, as you can imagine, they don't really take, the cops don't really make, take much notice of this. Janice being drunk, she works as a, at a bar as a dancer, you, you get the sort of drift. But what does get more of their attention is that John Smith, on the 19th of November, five days after the divorce is finalised, reports Janice missing to police. Now, he says that he last saw her two days earlier at the Sun Valley Inn outside Doylestown. He said to police that he was with Janice and made out that they were still married when he was speaking with them. This is weird. He didn't tell them that they were divorced, right? He was with. He said he was with Janice and a female friend and that they left the bar at different times because Janice was giving the friend a lift home. He woke up the next day in a car, a Mustang was parked next to his trailer, but she was nowhere to be found, and so he filed the missing persons report the next day. But this isn't the story he told Arellos. He told them that Jan was hitchhiking across the country and was headed towards Florida, adding that a car had been found on Interstate 71 near Columbus and towed back to his place. Now, the family did believe this story as Janice was a free spirit and was prone to take off at any time. Now Smith, he tells his brother that Janice was going to a witness relocation program because she was a drug informant. So he's telling different people different stories. Now we know that's always sus. But as time went on and with no word from Janice, her family became more and more worried. They even paid a private investigator $2,000 to try and find her, but with no results. Janice had disappeared and the family were becoming suspicious of John Smith, even if the cops really didn't put much effort into looking for her because, again, her job and her lifestyle. But Janice was close to her family, and even if she did take off, she would have been in touch with them sooner or later, and that just didn't happen. And eventually the case just went cold, or the missing persons report. In the late 70s though, Smith lived in Hammond, Indiana. Now now that's not far from his grandparents whose house was in Seville. Now Smith and his brother Michael were pretty much brought up by their grandparents after their parents divorced. Now in 1979, Chester Cheney, that's Smith's grandpa, was cleaning out his garage with grandson Michael, the brother, when they came across a four-foot-long homemade wooden box that was nailed shut. Now, Michael, 
he ends up levering the top of the box off and saw that it contained some old clothes. He was shocked, though, when he saw the remains of his sister-in-law, Janice Hartman, inside. They ended up calling John on the phone and told him to get the box out of the garage ASAP. Now, John drove over in his Corvette T-top, loaded up the box, and Chester and Michael vowed to keep this a family secret. Well, Michael, he wanted to call police, but Grandpa Chester punched him in the face and told him not to betray the family. So John Smith is driving around town with his four-foot-long wooden box poking out one of the T-tops in his Corvette because it's not going to fit properly in that car. Now, something you just want the cops to pull you over for, isn't it? Especially when your ex-wife's body's in it. But by some sort of foul luck, he's able to get rid of it. Now, we go a bit further. On April the 22nd, 1980, road workers are repairing a road at Morocco. The road work team, they they work as a pair. The first team go ahead... They fill up these cr- the cracks in the road with an oily tar while the second team come along and they fill up that oily crack with the rocky-type road material. Now, the first team was getting a bit too far in front and this oily stuff will dry out. It's no good. So they stop for a break while the second team catches up. Now, while stretching his leg, legs, his leg, he might have had one leg, I don't know, While stretching his legs, the road worker saw a wooden box on the side of the road. Now, he goes over to have a look and got his mates to help him carry it closer to the truck. Now, they jimmied the lid off the box and they saw like an old blanket, some old clothes. But when they lifted this blanket up, they were shocked to see a human skull. Now, the cops were called and the box and contents were taken to a funeral home for examination. Now, usually in these outback side of towns, the funeral home is like the, the council morgue. That's where things are going to get examined. Inside the box was that old blanket, plus it was numerous clothing items, which seemed to date back to the late 60s or the early 70s, like bell-bottom jeans and that. There was a multi- There's some multicoloured hair found amongst the clothing. Now, I'm thinking this multicoloured hair from the other clothing colours is probably leached into the hair. It wasn't that the... Hair started off multicolored. Okay, not only did they find a human skull, but they also found multiple bones. Now, when laid out, there was almost a complete skeleton, except the leg bones and the feet, all, all that from just under the knee, had been cut off. Now, some jewelry was also found in the box, a couple of rings and a necklace. Now, there was no ID found in the box, but it was determined that the body was of a young female. The body of Janice Hartman would become known as the lady in the box, Jane Doe. Now, one thing that was noted was on a thin dress inside the box that had been covering, it looks like covering the face or the skull, there was an imprint of the facial features, sort of like the Shroud of Turin. Now, the body would end up being buried in a pauper's grave, but a skull somehow ended up on a dentist's desk. Now, I guess he was getting the dental records and forgot to give the skull back. I don't know. That just seems a bit weird to me. Okay, so Morocco, Indiana and Doylston, Ohio, they're about 350 miles or 560 kilometres apart. 
which will make identification of this body difficult as Janice had no dental records. So even if they did have some connection, there's no she hasn't got any dental records to go off. So Smith moves around from state to state. He's on pretty good money as an engineer. In 1987, he ends up at Milford, Connecticut, where he buys a house and lives there with his girlfriend. He then moves to Florida for a better paying job in 1990. Here he meets 48-year-old Betty Fran Gladden, an executive secretary 10 years older than him. Now Fran was pretty fit for her age. She was petite at 5 foot 2 and had always been a good looker with great taste in fashion. In her younger days, she'd even done a bit of modelling. Now, they were a bit of an oddball match, Fran being fashionable and a bit glamorous, and Smith, being, he, he was totally geeky. Even since he was a the kid where I said he looked a bit dorky, he had this orange hair, bowl cut and freckles, but Fran seemed to be attracted to that. It was pretty much a whirlwind romance, as after just a couple of months dating, Fran and Smith were married in May of 1990. They then build a house in Florida next to Fran's ageing mum. So I guess Fran could take care of her. But things didn't go so well. On February the 5th, 1991, Fran was home, answered a knock at the door and was served with divorce papers. Now Fran was pretty shocked as they hadn't fought and thought things were pretty okay between the couple. Now when she called Smith about the divorce papers... He's at work, you see. They eventually reconciled and ended up moving to West Windsor Township, New Jersey, because Smith had some work at a company called Carborundum. Now, it was at Unit 9104 Heritage Boulevard, Princeton. That's a three-story condo of just 13 units. Now, Fran didn't really want to relocate there because she had her family ties in Florida, but she relented and she did move. Now, while up there, she noticed that Smith had a property in Connecticut. He still had that property in Connecticut and queried him as to why they didn't stay there while he found work rather than in West Windsor. Now, Smith told her that his sister was living there and that the house wasn't winterized, but his sister didn't care about that, so she's just going to stay there. Now, even though Fran tried to get to see this sister, get to see the house, he just avoided it week after week saying I'm too busy can't go there nah 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 so you can imagine she might start to be getting a bit sus she's getting divorce papers out of out of the blue which she then reconciles saying he's made a mistake uh, he's got this secret house she's not allowed to look at anyway in the August of 1991 Smith again took off but this time he took all his stuff no message or anything now, at this stage, Fran realised how vulnerable she was financially. All the stuff they'd brought for the Florida house, which they weren't living in now, was supposed to be in storage. But she had no idea where this storage unit was. She had nothing in her name, no bank account, no credit cards, because Smith took care of all the financials. So he'd left on a Friday, and Fran called his work to find him there on the following Monday. He told her that he just had to clear his head up and he'd gone away for a few days and slept in his car. Then Smith went back home. That sounds sus, doesn't it? Is he maybe going to Connecticut where it's not his sister staying but a girlfriend staying? He spent the whole weekend there? Who knows? 
But this time, Fran, when he came back, gave him ultimatums. She wanted her name on a bank account. She wanted to go to his house in Connecticut and meet his sister. And she said she's going to go and get a job. Well, at least she got the job. Smith stalled in doing any of the other things on Fran's ultimatum list. Now, things weren't great between the couple still, and they ended up going on a bit of a retreat to help their relationship. Now, this was on the, I'm sure it's the Labor Day weekend in September of 1991. It's not the Memorial Day weekend, which when I was doing the research, they were getting them mixed up. I'm sure it's the Labor Day weekend in September of 91. Those in the US will know what I'm talking about. Anyway, they went to this place called Strickland's Mountain Inn at 312 Woodland Road, Mount Pocono. Now this, and in the Pocono area at the time, is what they called a honeymoon hotel. It was big business in in Pocono during the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, not so much now. Now, the rooms, they had heart-shaped spa bars uh, right in the middle of the room. They had mirrors on the ceilings, on the walls, all this sort of stuff to get you horny, I suppose, and get it on. The room they booked, had a, like I said, they had a spa bath in the middle. So Fran got in and she's relaxing. But the TV for the room was broken, so the maintenance guy was called. Now when he knocked, Fran made her way out <laughs> towards the bathroom where she slipped and broke her hip and ended up in Pocono Medical Center in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Now Fran's stuck in hospital for weeks until she's able to go home. Now... This condo she's been living in is, is three floors up and it hasn't got any lifts. As you can imagine, this restricts her movements and it starts to piss her off. She can't leave the house. On Saturday, September the 28th, Fran spoke to her daughter Diana on the phone and she told her that she's going out shopping later to get a gift for her grandson. Now this would be the first time she'd attempted to leave the house after breaking her hip. She would be going out shopping with John to assist her as she was still on crutches, you see. Now, Deanna heard Smith in the background when she's on this call. Now, he says in the background that I already bought a gift and Fran was pretty pissed off. And Smith could be heard telling Fran he was too busy to take her out shopping anyway. Now, Fran was pretty upset not being able to go out after being stuck inside for so long and she told Deanna she's going to call her on Monday. Now, Monday came and Deanna called Fran, but she didn't pick up. She tried calling on Tuesday, but again, there was no answer. She tried again that night, but still no answer. She starts to get worried. With no answer on Wednesday, she called Smith at his work, asking where her mother was. Now, Smith replied that he thought she was with her. Now, he said that he came home on Tuesday night and there was a note saying, feed the fish, I'll be back in a couple of days adding that she'd been talking about going to Florida to visit her and he just thought she had. Deanna didn't let this go, asking how she could do this with a broken hip. But Smith told her the airport bus just stopped out the front of the condo. When asked where this note was so she could have a look at it, Smith told her he'd thrown it in the bin. Now, Deanna, she thought Smith was sounding a little bit too laid back on this phone call as if he didn't care where Fran was. And you'd think he would be worried knowing she wasn't at home 
or with where he said she should be her rellos. With Diana and Fran's sister, Sherry, pestering him for the next few days, they finally get Smith to file a missing persons report on Friday the 4th of November. Now, he told police that he'd come home on Tuesday night the 1st of November and he'd found that note. But Fran was never seen again. Well, the investigators did go around and interview Smith after he filed that report and he seemed a bit evasive when answering questions. Now, about the note that he mentioned that he had to feed the fish, well, the couple had a dog, and that wasn't mentioned. Asked what he did to look for Fran, and Smith told the cops that he'd put flies up around town. But this was a lie, as the investigators already knew that Fran's family had been the only ones to put them up, and they were pretty pissed off that he didn't help. When Smith's employer was interviewed, they were shocked that Fran was missing. Smith hadn't even mentioned to his employer or even his work people that she'd gone missing. Now, Fran's daughter, she ended up having a key to Smith's house. And when he left one day, she went in with the rellos and found that basically all of Fran's clothes and stuff was still in the house. And a suitcase that Smith said Fran had packed the things in when she left, well, that was still there. Investigators did the usual of asking around the bus companies, rental car agencies and airlines, but nothing was booked in Fran's name, nor was any one of Fran's descriptions cited around the time that she was supposed to have been to have left. And you can imagine this frail, petite woman on crutches trying to get around with a broken hip that's just getting better. Someone would have seen her. Smith was now a prime suspect, but they just didn't have enough evidence that he was involved in her disappearance. They, did, they had no body, they had no sighting of Fran. Well, Deanna and Sherry, they started to do a little bit of investigating themselves, and they found that John Smith had been married before and that his first wife, Janice, had gone missing also. Sherry tried to find relatives of Janice, and after many phone calls, she hit the jackpot and got in contact with her brother. Now, he tells her how Janice had gone missing just days after her divorce to Smith and that the investigation had gone cold. They hadn't seen or heard of Janice since November of 1974. It was now 1991, and that's 17 years. Armed with this information, Sherry contacted the investigators on Fran's case. Now, the investigators got in contact with their colleagues that handled the Janice disappearance and by luck, the original officer involved was still working. Going over the Janice Hartman files, investigators noticed a lot of inconsistencies in the missing persons report. Now, two biggies were that Smith told police that he was Janice's husband, even though they had been divorced and also that she was living with him in that trailer home at Worcester, which also wasn't correct, as she didn't live with him. She was living with her father in Doylston. Eventually, both cases go cold, but law enforcement and Fran's family, they just don't give up. When the FBI became involved, they did a profile on Smith. They went over all the interviews with Smith and also all the witness statements. In May of 1999, so this is another eight years, they set up a huge and very costly operation to not only interview Smith, but to interview as many of the witnesses to both cases as they could find, including his brother Michael. 
Now, they knew Smith would be eager to find out what the FBI had on him, as he'd been always willing to have past interviews with police, forgoing his right to silence or having a lawyer present. You see, not only is Smith a bit of a dickhead, but he also think he's, thinks he's the smartest person in the room. He could deal with more questioning, and he would try to get more information out of the investigators, especially FBI, than he would give back. Now, Smith, when approached at his workplace, he was now living in California, he was quite happy to be interviewed. Now, <laughs> this interview went as before. He would be asked questions, and if what he said was able to be proven to be a lie, he would just change the story to fit with the facts. Eventually, he's caught out in one of these lies, and the investigators, they actually had a phone tap recording of him, and that was proving he was lying, in his own words. Now, Smith, he's, he's all calm and collected, but he starts to lose his composure. He ends up screeching out this unholy sound, and he told the investigators that he needed to lie down as he basically felt he was having a heart attack. Well, you can't just let him die, even if he's bullshitting. And the interview was over. The FBI really had nothing new. And this whole operation had cost a lot of money to set up. And as you know, when you get budgeted a certain amount of money to get someone, if you just fail, it's not going to look good with your bosses. And probably it's just going to be all over. Now, his brother, Michael Smith, he'd been interviewed as well. He wasn't happy at all about being approached at his workplace, and he didn't give up much either. But then he ends up having this change of heart, and he later contacts the interviewers, the FBI, asking for another meeting, and he would go there with a lawyer. Well, Michael, he ends up giving investigators the breakthrough they needed. He ends up telling them about this box and how he'd seen his brother actually build it, fill it with clothes, and it ended up being stored in the grandpa's garage. Now, years later, when he was cleaning up and the box was open, he saw that what he was pretty sure was Janice's decomposed body. The only bit he didn't see was the legs, and they'd seemed to be cut off below the knees. He went on to say that a pact was made with his grandfather not to tell a soul. And then John was called to come get the box and get it the fuck out of here. Michael continued saying that John just casually turned up, put the box in the back of his Corvette and drove off. Well, the FBI, after being downhearted after that John Smith interview, which just going nowhere, all of a sudden they had reason to believe they could catch this son of a bitch. They ended up tracking down that Corvette that John had on sold and by putting the word around, they found out that a body had been found in a box in Morocco, Indiana, in 1980. And it was a Jane Doe case. Well, exhumation and DNA testing showed that the body in the box, the Jane Doe, was Janice Hartman. The Corvette had scuff marks inside the interior, which looked like would have been made by a box the size that Janice had been found in. Now, further searches of John Smith's properties did uncover fragments of a skull and teeth. DNA testing would prove that it wasn't France. And of course, Janice's skull was intact. That was the skull that had been on that dentist's desk. So, the investigators have the theory that Smith had not only killed Janice, but may have also killed the missing Fran 
And there could be a third victim that no one knows about. Of course, Smith denies everything, but the testimony of his brother would be his downfall. Now, there's a race for time to get Smith arrested, right? Charged, indicted, and off the trial. Now, I'm not going to go into the complexities of the law, but they had to keep this very secret so Smith couldn't slip out of their grasp. So maybe please read or listen to A Stranger in My Bed by Michael Fleeman. Like I said, it's a really well-written book. It covers a, a lot more of the detail that I can't really go here. So he goes to trial for the murder of Janice Hartman. His brother, Michael, is the main witness. They have his testimony about seeing John make the box, put Janice's clothes in it. Then later, Michael sees her body in it, and then John takes it away. Witnesses say they saw Smith at the club where Janice worked and that they actually left together, and she was never seen again. Her car was at his trailer the day after she went missing and was still there when police came to interview him. Now, Smith's story had changed multiple times when he was ever caught out in a lie. He had told his relatives different stories than he told the police and, of course, his own family. Now, in defence, Smith told the court that, yes, he did put her body in the box, but she'd been killed by drug dealers and he was scared that he'd be blamed by police and that's why he did it. But the jury didn't believe him and he would be found guilty of the murder of Janice Hartman and sentenced to 15 years to life. But what about Fran? Well, he denied having anything to do with her disappearance. Well, then 2019, so it wasn't long ago, a grand jury indicted Smith on her murder. But the fact that he murdered Janice wouldn't be allowed as evidence in the trial. He was offered a plea deal in 2021 for a 20-year term to be run consecutively with his current sentence and his current sentence, he would be up for a parole hearing in 2029. So either he takes his plea deal or he goes to trial. We may know the outcome soon. So, there you go. He kills his first wife who just divorced him, stores her body in a box for years in his grandfather's garage. The box is found, but the body is a Jane Doe for years. Then his second wife goes missing. But almost another decade goes by before all the dots are joined and his brother finally has the balls to spill the beans on what had gone on. Now, Janice had had her legs cut off below the knees. Now, the shrinks reckon that this was not only to fit her in the box, but also it represented not her being able to walk out on Smith ever again. Now, they were cut off with a serrated knife, not a saw. They weren't hacked off with an axe or anything, but with a knife. That just shows the determination for Smith to cut off her legs. It wouldn't have been easy at all. And the bottom half of her legs were never found. John Smith just couldn't handle Janice divorcing him, going out having fun and meeting new men working as a coyote dancer in a bar, living her life and driving a Mustang. So the jerk kills her and cuts off her legs. Michael, his brother, now, fair enough, he did want to go to the cops when he first discovered Janice in the box, but Granddaddy forced him to keep quiet. But after the grandfolks died, he was able to get it off his chest and help bring closure and justice to the Hartman family. Fran Gladden Smith and her family. Well, they might just get some justice soon after nearly 20 years. Let's hope Smith gives up the location of her body. 
Well, Islanders, what a case. Spanning from 1974 to present day. Now, of course, you've seen in the news, we're getting more and more of these cold cases being solved as technology progresses. And a lot of Jane Doe's and John Doe's are being identified via DNA or the family chain of DNA. Well, that's it for this episode. For my patrons, there's a special message there for you. And thanks to John Kelly for the PayPal donation. I'll grab a few beers with that for sure. It's nearly Christmas, so I may or may not have another episode out before then or before New Year. If not, I hope everyone has a happy festive season and a fantastic New Year. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom, funk, and good night.